everyone and welcome back to Reader's Digress, the podcast where we read nonfiction books so that you don't have to, unless you want to. I'm Kate. And I'm Molly. And we're very excited to be back for season two. Yay! Today we are talking about a book by Angus Fletcher called Wonderworks, the 25 most powerful inventions in a history of literature. And it was published in 2021. So it's a very it's a freshie. Uh, yeah, I'm really excited to talk about this book. It sounds uh, a little intimidating from the title, I think, but the actual content of the book is really accessible and fascinating, I think. Yeah, um, and I can give a little summary for everyone so that you know what the book is about. And then Kate and I both chose essentially like chapters or essays in the book to talk about. So we will do that. But before we do give a summary of the book and dive into it, we wanted to give like a little uh, housekeeping note about the podcast and how we will be releasing episodes. Um, Because if you haven't noticed, we're like in the third year of a pandemic, things are hard and podcasting is also hard. (laughs) Surprise! (laughs) Which is why it's taken us so long to like release season two episodes but what we think will work best for us going forward is to release one a month instead of two so that's what we're going to be doing for now and we might play with the format a little bit um, just to keep things interesting and really fun for Kate and I but we just wanted to give you an update that we are still doing the pod it's just going to be a little bit slower paced um, but we're excited to be back Um, But for the record, if anyone wanted to become our patron so that we don't have to work and we could just do the podcast, we are open to that arrangement. So (laughs) if you are a millionaire, billionaire, et cetera, and would like to pay us to just do Reader's Digress, we're in. Yeah, the baseline salary is not insignificant, though. So please, only seriously interested parties need apply. Yeah. <laughs> Only serious offers, please. <laughs> Only serious wealthy people should be considering. Okay, anyway, enough of that. Jeff Bezos, if you're listening. <laughs> and if you send don't money. we're gonna egg your house, okay? This is a threat. <laughs> um, maybe we should do that anyway, because he seems like he really sucks. You should hundred percent. Uh I will spend um, of which have you seen the pictures of him with He's, like, in Miami, and I swear to God, he looks exactly like Pitbull. No. Oh, my God. I can't wait to see I saw the picture on Twitter, and I was, like, for a solid minute to 90 seconds, I really, truly thought it was was Pitbull. And I was, like, why is everyone being so mean to Pitbull? Who cares about him? Oh, my God. He hasn't been relevant for seven years. What was that thing he would always say, like, Mr. Worldwide? Was that it? Jeff Jeff Bezos is the new Mr. Worldwide. Oh, that is so embarrassing. I want to die. Uh, The last photo I saw of old Jeff was him as a space cowboy in a literal cowboy hat after going to space. So that I was like, well, here's where I get um, off. That is also terrifying. I actually didn't see that photo, Mm -hmm. but we'll we'll need to see that. We'll we'll exchange. You send me the Mr. Worldwide. I'll send you space cowboy. We will make fun of him. Yeah. 
etc. As he deserves And then to also be. he will fund our lives. Yes. Look, maybe he's into like the dominatrix thing where we just like belittle him and humiliate him. <laughs> and then he gives us money for it. He pays us. But my clothes are staying on, Jeff. That's part of Everyone's the clothes are staying on. We're just being, <laughs> we're just bullying. Yeah. yeah, yours have to stay on too. Don't you dare. If there's a sexual component to it, he can do it after we hang up. <laughs> it's because it's just us bullying you call. for money, okay? <laughs> on a video call. Oh, incredible. Yes. <laughs> Anyway, thanks. I don't know how to make it any more clear that I deserve to have my life funded by this man. We all do. And also, he can... (laughs) For nothing in return. No. We owe him nothing. (laughs) Except humiliation. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, back to Uh, what we came here to do. Wonderworks, the 25... What did we come here to do, Molly? (laughs) Good question. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me about this book. (laughs) Okay. Wonderworks, the 25 most powerful inventions in the history of literature by Angus Fletcher. Angus Fletcher is a professor at the Ohio State University, where he teaches as part of a project of Project Narrative, which is a think tank dedicated to the study of stories, which is very cool. He has two PhDs from Yale. One is in neuroscience and another is in literature, which is just like bananas. And his focus is on the mechanics and technology of storytelling. He has written a couple of books, like the one we're discussing today, as well as a number of articles. He also taught Shakespeare at Stanford and has done consulting for television storytelling, which is very, very cool. Like there was, he did some stuff for PBS and other things like that. So that's awesome. Oh, nice. Um, In this book, Wonderworks, Angus sets out to demonstrate how literature not only helps us celebrate and capture history, the human experience and the makings of life but has actually helped create those experiences and shape history because of the way stories help us learn and process the things that happen to us. Wonderworks examines 25 of the most significant literary advancements and the effect they have had throughout history. Angus's thesis is that literature helps us experience and thus move through our emotions like grief and loneliness as it opens up room for us to feel into other experiences through joy and wonder. And those experiences change us as people and as a society. Through this book, we see the way that storytelling is a science and literature is a technology of creativity that can be advanced and expanded upon just like any other technology. So that's what the book is about. And then each chapter is broken out into one of these um, technological advancements in literature. And Kate and I each chose one, right? Did you choose just one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. That we'll go through so that you can get a sense of what he means by these advancements and how they have affected the landscape of literary literary things, the, you know, technical term for it, stuff. <laughs> and uh, so why don't, Kate, why don't you start with yours? I have just been over here making so much noise. Um, <laughs> I had to open my book and it was like, <laughs> like a creaky so, door. <laughs> Pretty much. I'm like doing sound effects into this mic right now. Uh, So yeah, thanks for that summary, Molly. I really like how you um, put that. And I did not know that he had a degree in neuroscience as well. So that's really interesting. And knowing that I can see how that comes through in the book a lot. 
Um, so the chapter that I chose to read and focus on is called Live Your Dream. Uh, and he takes usually like three or four uh, either plays or books or uh, sometimes TV shows or movies and uses those to describe this, this literary device. And so in this chapter, he's talking about Tina Fey's 30 Rock, which we know obviously we needed to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, super cow of fragilistic expialidocious mm-hmm. um, and the invention of the wish triumph. So that's mm-hmm. the subtitle for this little chapter. And essentially, uh, the, mar- the argument that he is making is that it's important for people to be able to imagine what-if scenarios mm-hmm. uh, that they can then bring back into the real world and make those tweaks to make their lives better. Uh, so I will start with my key takeaway from this chapter, which is pretty simple and not dissimilar to my summary of this chapter, <laughs> where I think uh, the key takeaway from reading this was that it's important to let ourselves get lost in fictional fantasies sometimes so that we can imagine a better reality. Uh, and I think that that is especially important when you are imagining something that hasn't been done before or imagining a world where there is more justice or more equality or um, a different set of leaders or something to that effect where we can't physically see that in our world right now, but that doesn't mean that it can't become a reality. Yeah. And if no one ever imagines it, then it won't become a reality, right? Like if no one ever conceives of it, then it can't happen. So. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. One of the cool things that he talks about in this chapter is using Don Quixote as uh, an example in this about the difference between fiction and reality and how our brain processes that, that when we're watching something that's fictional, our brain starts yelling at us, giving us like an error detector, like, this isn't real, this isn't real. Like, (laughs) um, and so we have like a warning that goes off in our head telling us that something is fantasy. Uh, And if it's badly executed, we are likely to turn it off and just be like, well, this is stupid. This isn't how the world is. Um, But then when our brain uh, is able to understand that the fiction knows that it's fiction and that it's not real, then it can become something that's comic and funny to us. Uh, And so a lot of this um, kind of hinges on or describes or explains how absurdity can be comedic, which I found to be really interesting. Uh, And then there are sort of two devices um, that are used here uh, that hinge on the psychological vehicle of counterfactual thinking. So my quote is, about this counterfactual thinking that is required for us to understand fact Mm. and fiction. Um, So this quote, I'll give you the page number. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Love a page number. Okay. (laughs) Love a page number. Uh, 357 for those at home who are following along. Check and check. So (laughs) this quote says, uh, for us to achieve our dreams, we need to appreciate the line between truth and make-believe. Without the line, we don't 
we'd make the don't error of believing that our fantasies are already true, charging deludedly ahead until hard reality wakes us up. But with the line intact, we can engage in a dream come true technique known as counterfactual thinking. Counterfactual thinking, as its name suggests, is thinking that runs counter to the facts of life. To perform it, our brain imagines an alternate world in which a few of those facts are tweaked, allowing us to conduct a thought experiment to see how the tweaks cash out. If the cash out is good, then our brain stops the thought experiment and returns to our actual existence, determined to make those same tweaks in reality. And so I found that to be just so fascinating because I think that's very true and makes a lot of sense to my experience of reading a book or watching TV and saying, you know, that's like, that's so cool. I wish I could do that. Or could I do that? And if so, what would that mean for my life? Can I tweak my life to better reflect this art that I found to be so mesmerizing mm-hmm. or a uh, better quality of life? Um, and so, yeah, I just really, I really connected to that. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, sometimes we create art, or a lot of fiction stories, television series, because there's part of us that wants to play out what would happen if we did something like this. I was thinking of that television show Ozark, mm-hmm. which is about um, this family yeah. that has to essentially like go into hiding in the Ozarks to avoid some like bad deals that they got into. And then Shady they're like, stuff. yeah. <laughs> and then they kind of get, they, they're part of the cartel and it's like a whole messy thing, but um, it's really good. And I, I think sometimes people write stories like that because obviously they want to like sell a TV show i'm not like a total naive idiot but also because (laughs) they want to play out what would happen if they had to make these tough decisions and like Mm -hmm. try to protect their family because of like a mess they created in their working life or whatever and to play it out it it is a thought experiment yeah i think um the most popular tv Mm -hmm. shows of the past like five or Mm ten years a lot of them are doing exactly that where they really focus on quote unquote everyday mm-hmm. people. Like if you think of Walter White, oh, yeah, for example, yeah. of being this like science teacher and like, what if the science teacher became a meth yeah, dealer yeah. and <laughs> basically a meth mogul, yeah. right. Uh, by the end of the show. And yeah, I think that that is really interesting and in a lot of ways allows us to play out these scenarios in which we have more agency mm-hmm. over our lives than we feel like we sometimes mm-hmm. do. And that seems especially helpful in a time like a pandemic mm-hmm. where a lot of people don't have the ability to uh, chase mm-hmm. the dreams that they want to, or maybe they are have more limitations now than they previously yeah, did. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like Stephen King described his writing like that was that it starts with an idea of a, a weird scenario. Like what would happen if, you know, a science teacher mm-hmm. started selling, making math and selling it. And then that's what forms the story all around just one small concept that like branches out from there. So yeah, I think this is a very tried and true method. Although I was thinking of one other thing. I was trying to, I was talking to someone the other day about TV shows and they said something about how they, they, they weren't that into super popular TV shows. Usually they like 30 rock. And I was like, me too. It's my Mm -hmm. favorite. And they also said that 
but then they said, you know, beyond that, I wasn't into like the super popular ones. And I was like, yeah, me either. Cause I was thinking mm-hmm. like Game of Thrones. Like I never watched any of Game of Thrones. There's lots uh-huh. of shows that I just yeah. like never got into. But then <laughs> I was mm-hmm. like, but have you watched like The Office? Or then I asked if they'd watched, um, parks and rec and a few others and then they were like i like how you just said you never watched any of the popular shows and then you named the like the most popular <laughs> shows of the past decade and i was like you know what 30 rock was niche okay <laughs> i was like trying to be very cool anyway i never watched game of thrones okay um excuse me uh my taste is yeah, unique I, and special I am so a hipster, you can just back okay? off <laughs> Toddlers and tiaras. All right. You're welcome for gracing your reality. <laughs> <Toddlers> Absolutely. <laughs> oh God. Okay. Anyway, great. Love it. Um. I yeah. I love being a part of like a pop culture zeitgeist. Yeah. So I'm usually all in on watching something that has like a cult sure. fandom, even if it's not normally mm-hmm. my thing. So. Yes, Suit got into Game of Thrones, uh, you know, Breaking Bad, all of that stuff. And um, it is like, I don't know, I think it's fun to have a bunch of people connecting over a piece of pop yeah, culture it all is. at the same it time. it is. It is fun. Which, like, doesn't always happen now because there's just so much content out there. Like, you, like, I have had people suggest shows to me that I'm like, oh, I didn't even know that like existed that just never came up with yeah my algorithm, absolutely you know? uh, yes i was thinking about that the other day i think that's part of the reason why i still enjoy the bachelor even though it is truly unwatchable because everyone watches it at the same time <laughs> yeah and, yeah it's a shared yeah. thing and so you, like i really enjoy the experience of like going on the reddit boards afterwards to be mm-hmm. like can you about leave watch shade dead <laughs> like it's so much fun yeah do you also hate so-and-so yeah. do you also hate kelly with a y <laughs> the bachelor is the most boring bachelor in history every year it's the best yeah <laughs> they're always the most boring uh, they're like that's the thing they've actually always been boring <laughs> it is a prerequisite in fact um, okay <laughs> um yeah i i think uh i want to talk about your chapters so i'm not okay. gonna spend too much more time i I did want to just um, go through two little pieces of, of information, which mm-hmm. I realized I forgot to actually mention the literary devices that oh, okay. he talks about in this chapter, which is the comic wink. So when a TV show or a book lets you know that they know that what they're doing is absurd and that's mm-hmm. supposed to be the comedy of it. Mm-hmm. And then the second part is what we were mentioning, which is the reality shifter. So taking this thought experiment mm-hmm. and tweaking something in your own life to better reflect that thought experiment. And yeah, I think the the idea of the reality shifter, I'm just like, interested. Yeah. I'm interested yeah. in this. <laughs> I love it. I'm also, I love that he used 30 Rock because it's so, it, it's so rich and so good. And I definitely feel like it, is worth considering in things that um, advanced technology in storytelling. Oh yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> I agree. All right. So Molly, tell me about your chapter. Um, so I focused on chapter 23, which was called unfreeze your heart. And it, uh, in this chapter, he talks about Alison Bechdel, Euripides, Samuel Beckett, T.S. Eliot, and the invention of the clinical joy. So this chapter starts with a discussion about Euripides, who was a a Greek. Is that it? A Greek? Yes. A Greek playwright. 
So he opens with a conversation about Euripides' tragic comedies. And these were plays that he wrote that combined elements of both tragic plays and comedies. And at the time, they were a little confusing because people hadn't seen this combination before. So Angus discusses how these tragic comedies function as a way of helping people with frozen emotions, which is a symptom of the lesser known manifestation of PTSD, begin to analyze, process, and eventually feel their emotions again. So I am going to explain first the PTSD stuff because I think it will help understand the rest of the literary accomplishment that Euripides introduced and then Alison Bechdel really, uh, I think, pioneered in a modern form. So there are two kinds of expressions of PTSD, which I actually hadn't heard this talked about in this way before, so I thought it was very interesting. And the one that most of us are probably familiar with is the emotions when when they enter a hyperactivated state. So, you know, we've heard about flashbacks or nightmares and anxiety attacks when someone has experienced something horrific and traumatic. And he, Angus explains that this happens because our prefrontal prefrontal cortex, which is the part of our brain that helps us regulate our emotions, fails after a prolonged period of stress or like an extreme event. Um, in the in the book, he says like a chronic stress, but I think it's important to note that you can get PTSD from one short experience. Like it doesn't have to be like you were in a war. It can be like a short event. So anyway, that's my own <laughs> add-in. <laughs> um, but when that, the Inclusivity! Rape, yeah, exactly. When the emotional break fails, it leaves us without a way to regulate those extreme emotions. But in the second type of PTSD, which is the one that the tragic comedies could quote unquote treat is that their emotions, someone's emotions shut off completely. So instead of the break failing, it gets stuck on. And this is a way of protecting us from emotions that are too big, painful or overwhelming for our brain to experience. So Angus goes on to explain that these plays by Euripides were misunderstood during their time um, because they were confusing for the audience as they didn't know how they were supposed to feel in these scenes that combined elements of humor, sadness, and hope. Uh, however, it was later discovered that this process of observing and discerning hard emotions from a safe distance, so like in the audience of a play, and coupling that with an uplifting experience like a positive ending to a story or humor can break through the frozen emotions uh, that someone is ex experiencing if they have the second type of PTSD. So he connects this to Alison Bechdel's work. She experienced that kind of PTSD and she later wrote uh, like a tragic comic. So it's like a graphic novel memoir where she goes through her childhood and some of her experiences with her father. And it helps her process her feelings in a way that allows her to begin actually feeling them again. So I, I thought this was a very cool explanation of how something in the past wasn't really understood and then later became fundamental to psychology, even though it was being utilized in a literary format earlier on. Um, mm -hmm. And now people are like building on that as they create their own art. So mm -hmm. my key takeaway is that we are often drawn to what soothes us, even if we can't understand how or why it's helping. Mm, yeah. 
That's a good key takeaway. I have definitely had any, like experiences like that where uh, there's another chapter in the book that's kind of adjacent or complementary to this mm-hmm. one where he talks about how sometimes you identify with a character that's fictional, even though mm-hmm. they're opposite of you or don't mm-hmm. really have a lot of the same characteristics. And I think that is very true that sometimes we gravitate towards things without even being able to consciously articulate what it's doing for us. Yeah. But just because it gives us the feeling that we need at that time or the coping tool, like you're mentioning that we need right then. Yeah, absolutely. And I think with even more like substances that we use to soothe ourselves too, we might not be able to articulate the feeling it gives us that we like. It might feel more like, oh, I like the ritual of it or I I enjoy like drinking with friends or whatever. But there's probably some other element to it that it's like relaxing our nervous system or whatever that we're not necessarily Mm -hmm. conscious of in the moment. Like, oh, thank God I'm not anxious anymore. But that's happening for us. And that's part of the reason we keep returning to that soothing mechanism. And Mm -hmm. I think we do that when we lose ourselves in stories and stuff as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, for me, what was interesting about the tragic comic is understanding or identifying how many popular shows now use these devices yeah, and yeah. how it's actually everywhere. And <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. one of the most successful shows or, you know, uh, most watched shows right now uh, just went off the air, but Succession on HBO. Oh, yeah. I would definitely describe as a tragicomic. And Mm -hmm. uh, I think there are a lot of people who have really been drawn to it and Mm -hmm. not really been able to articulate why they care about the characters because the characters are not good people. And Mm -hmm. you ostensibly wouldn't or shouldn't care about these people because they're Mm -hmm. filthy rich and they all do terrible things. But I think it's that human element of the comic relief mixed in with the family dynamics that keeps mm-hmm. people coming back yeah totally i i i can see myself doing that even without it being fictional like with mm-hmm. um like influencers sometimes like there's one person in particular that i've mm-hmm. been like really curious about lately and she's not a good person i wouldn't describe her as a good person and there's like a lot of stuff that she's done that's bad but i was again on a reddit board reading like stuff people were saying about her and I kept finding myself being like in agreement but also feeling bad for her like people are being so Mm -hmm. harsh and I was like well I totally agree with that but it's still I I still identify with some person yeah and like she's clearly been through stuff that's like made her this way and so it's hard to Mm -hmm. fully like yeah I don't know it's weird how you start to identify with different aspects of stories and people yeah for sure. I, I've also found myself, and maybe this is just a symptom of the media that I uh, have been consuming in the last, like, five years. Or maybe mm-hmm. it's, like, you're saying, like, something that I'm just naturally drawn to that I need to, like, work out in myself. <laughs> we'll find out in therapy. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> um, I think one of the things that is funny to me is that I'm so much more connected and engaged in things that show that tragic side of Mm -hmm. things as well as the comedic Mm -hmm. uh the one um i tried to i was watching ted lasso which is a super popular apple tv uh show and it's endlessly optimistic and positive and 
as I was watching it, I was almost like, it's almost so optimistic and so positive. It's taking me out of it because Mm. I know that this is not how life is. And so I was kind of having like thinking about this as I read my chapter. And then as you're talking about your chapter Mm -hmm. of just like how easy it is for our brains to just be like, well, this isn't how life is. So I can't connect to this at all. And, um, how there's like, there's definitely a positive to watching something as positive and optimistic Mm-hmm. And uh, everything like that. Like, there's a place for that, too. But I think for my brain, mm-hmm. I'm like, this is too positive. Totally. <laughs> it's not working for me. Well, <laughs> I I've, need some cynicism. I, I completely, <laughs> yeah, I completely agree. I feel like I've talked about this before, but when I felt especially lonely, I have hard avoided um, any, like, romance movies. Um, mm. and I know lots of people when they're single and lonely, et cetera, they, they gravitate towards that because they like to witness like what could be, but I've mm-hmm. always felt like I don't show me something that I know will never exist. Like, mm, you know, yeah. and so or like, I, don't I think show it just, me something I want right now, but can't have right yeah, now. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's and I'm afraid rude, I'll never honestly. have because it just triggers the fear that I'll never have it, not the hope that I will. Cause so I think it just right, depends right. on where you fall on the spectrum of like angst or whatever. Like if you're like a little <laughs> further towards the positive, maybe you on really the emo scale. <laughs> yeah, totally. So yeah, I think it kind of just depends on on what your triggers are too, you know, like is yeah, happiness a trigger? Sure. It is for me. <laughs> so like don't show me something beautiful. I'll hate it. <laughs> For real. That's, I, I don't know. I kind of, I get it. Like, it's like when the pandemic first started and there was like two groups of readers, there were like the people who sought out things that reflected their pandemic experience or oh my God. Yeah. That was story. Oof. Like people were reading like severance and they were reading the stand and they were reading station 11. Yeah. And then there was the other group of people that were like, Nope, escapist. I'm going to fantasy. I'm going yes. to, you know, just like stuff that's completely different. And I think that's, that's sort of how it is. And I don't, I think both are very valid ways of coping with something that seems too big to cope with. Yeah. And I definitely, it kind of depends. Like during the pandemic, I was not into like, don't show me any like, you know, mass weaponized (laughs) disease warfare. Get out of here (laughs) with your hazmat suits. (laughs) Yeah. But then there are other things like other things I've experienced that were negative that I'm really interested and obsessed with. And I like want to read tons about it and all that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it totally depends on what the situation is. And maybe it's like, once you're out of it, you find yourself a little bit more into it or something. Yeah. I think that's a good point though, that like even within one person, it Mm -hmm. might just, it might be dependent on specific experiences. Like this one experience I really need to work through by having something similar. And this other experience is like, I'm not at the stage where I want to do that yet. So I'm yeah. avoiding, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, well, I it, think that's it really It kind of reminds me of how, so Angus Fletcher describes how the first type of PTSD can be treated with, um, is it called aversion therapy? Immersion. <laughs> Immersion therapy. <laughs> I was like, what? That seems wrong. Aversion to the thing that you're being immersed in. Um, mm. And which I actually didn't think was something that people still did, but the way he was describing it didn't sound as bad as I guess I've imagined it, where basically mm. you are in a safe environment to confront something that you're afraid of. So, you know, 
probably heights mm-hmm. isn't giving you PTSD, but maybe you had an experience that did. And so you have a safe environment in which to be close to or experience heights that helps you mm-hmm. begin to reduce the fear, anxiety, whatever. So mm-hmm. I think within us, we can probably have traumas that require us to face and immerse ourselves in the thing and traumas that require us to like stand from afar and analyze it and to begin to cope yeah. or something, you know, I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, it is really like, it just makes me uh, in awe of how complex our brains are. Right. Mm-hmm. That like, even within it's very individual, but even within mm-hmm. an individual, those traumas are individual too, or those like those moments that you may need to work through um, might need individual attention or a individual coping mechanism that wouldn't work for working through something else. So yeah, yeah. it just is really complex and nuanced and it definitely um, fosters a lot of respect for people who are in neuroscience and mm-hmm. psychology that they are working on this because it's complicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you ever consider going into like psychology when you were in college and trying to figure out what you wanted to do? Yeah, I really was fascinated by psychology. And when I came into my undergrad, I was undecided mm-hmm. and originally thought that my major would either be psychology or communications. Oh. And uh, it's interesting because now many years later, I've kind of ended up somewhere that's a crossroads <laughs> between mm-hmm, those two things mm-hmm. in user experience design. Um, a lot of it is driven by human behavior, but I didn't have the like brain for the statistics side of psychology. Mm-hmm, <laughs> so that's yeah. what kind of scared me away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Were you oh, interested? I, I feel like a lot of people are naturally drawn to understanding human behavior. Mm-hmm. I was, I really liked I had a psychology, I had psychology in high school, actually, which isn't very common. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. And then I had also in college psychology courses and a socio sociology course. I almost said socioeconomics. Mm. I was like, that's wrong. Sociology. (laughs) And that was super fascinating. That would have been useful too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. More useful probably. Um, But I, I was really interested in them, but I, I was fairly confident that I did not want to be a therapist. Like I felt mm-hmm. like I, I'd been in therapy enough to know kind of what the job was like. And I was like, if I have to deal with someone like me all the time, impossible. You know, I was like, that can't. <laughs> Goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> no, There's only room but... enough for one of my brains <laughs> in here. I just felt like <laughs> I wouldn't be able to compartmentalize very well. And yeah. I thought that it would affect my life negatively, which I, I still think that's so good call. Um, but yeah. yeah, that's what ultimately I was like, I don't think I can do that. And, and I know there are other mm-hmm. things you can do with like degrees like that, but it's limited, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I definitely felt the same and have a lot of respect for people who are able to compartmentalize that and mm-hmm. give so much of themselves in their job, but also then go home and like set that aside and say, yeah. okay, I can you know, do some self-care and uh, still function mm-hmm. <laughs> as an adult mm-hmm. in the world. Because uh, I don't know that I would be especially good at that. Or mm-hmm. if I had chosen that path, I think I would have had to practice that a lot and maybe still would not have gotten 
great at it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't, yeah. I think there's only so much you can do. You can't change who you fundamentally are. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can learn like good skills and process trauma yeah. that's making it harder for you to compartmentalize or whatever, but it, you can't like just remake your brain entirely. So. Yeah. I think if we could, a lot of us would be out here trying to architect Oh, <laughs> draw out blueprints for absolutely. a new brain like you know what i would love <laughs> you know what's worse though is that there would be people who weren't there'd be people who'd be like no i'm fine being terrible <laughs> you'd be like oh, you have I'm the option perfect so uh, um, i don't know about you but <laughs> so i was just gonna read my quote really quick too it's yes it, it isn't like a i'm sorry super... that i got us off track oh no that's okay i just wanted to close it with this basically because this is one yeah. line in the chapter that resonated with me and it it changed the way I thought about something, which we all love that. Mm -hmm. So um, it says step one, and and this is him describing how to process the type two PTSD. Step one is for us to look at photographs of people experiencing emotions and to explain what the emotions are for. That's grief. It helps people process trauma. That's fear. It helps keep people safe from danger. That's hope. It helps people stay positive in dark times. That's joy. It helps people celebrate their lives. And then he goes on to explain the second step, which is to um, have an uplifting experience and these start to break down the barriers between the frozen emotions. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a bit of a simplification, but you get the point. (laughs) And the reason I liked this so much was that part where he says, that's grief. It helps people process trauma. Because I've I've always thought of grief as like a, a roadblock. Not not a mm. thing that is helpful, but in fact a thing that I must survive or get through. Yeah, and, an obstacle. Yeah, and I really liked how it was framed as the the thing that literally helps you get through the obstacle, which is trauma, rather than like yeah, an additional yeah. component of the like bullshit. It is the thing that mm. is helping you. So to not like try to minimize it or avoid it but to embrace Mm -hmm. it even though it's difficult because it's the thing that's helping you get through it so I really like that yeah I really like that too it's almost a way of finding compassion and gratitude for Mm -hmm. an emotion you're feeling that's so overwhelming like grief yeah Uh, and being like no there's there's a place for this this is natural this is helping me instead of being like no, I hate this and I don't want to do it. It's like, well, we all hate feeling it, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it doesn't 100%. mean that like, it doesn't mean it can't also be helpful. Um, yes. I was talking yes. to a previous colleague who is a psychologist and she had described feelings as friendly messengers. Mm. And there's mm-hmm. something about that that I just really loved because it's kind of the same sentiment that mm-hmm. if you're feeling something, it's because your body is trying to tell you something and mm-hmm. maybe it's just telling you you need to take a break or rest. And, you know, that sort of um, thing can be such a, like, I don't know, refreshing way of thinking about your emotions Uh, as opposed to thinking of them as like bad emotions or Mm -hmm. (laughs) bad Mm -hmm. things because then I think we all have the tendency to feel guilty about feeling that quote-unquote bad emotion Mm -hmm. instead of just feeling it and recognizing its place yeah I think that a 
key component of learning how to do that is recognizing that you don't control your emotions. You control your thoughts to some extent. You have you have some agency there, but your feelings aren't something that you are like choosing to have come when they come. They just come. And so you don't have to they you don't have to bring any judgment to the experience of what the feeling is. You know, obviously you don't have to like it, like feeling sad is the worst, but it 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 doesn't have to be something that you're like, "Oh, I did something wrong." Like I didn't take care of myself enough and that's why I'm feeling sad. Like maybe mm-hmm. that's just yeah. the signal that tells you like it's time to start taking care of yourself or something, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or yeah, I just, it's like, uh, it's a refreshing way of viewing emotions that doesn't involve like an emotional pile on where it's like, yeah. well, I feel angry and then I feel guilty for feeling angry and then I feel shamed of feeling yeah, angry. Yeah, <laughs> totally, like, totally. Like, cause that is a way more complicated to unpack than just I'm angry. Yeah, a- absolutely. Yeah, that's a really anger is a good one because I feel like many of us, especially women, are told that that is a bad emotion and like there are no such thing mm-hmm. as bad emotions. So yeah, that's a really good, I think a lot of people feel guilt when they feel angry and then shame. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is a, it's a common cycle. It seems yeah. like with a lot of people. Um, yeah. yeah, I, I really, uh, I really like that quote and I'm glad that you pulled it cause it's yeah. important and a good way of thinking about things. Yeah. And that was on page 347. If anyone is wanting to follow along. For those of you following along. Yeah. <laughs> um okay well do you want to go to questions do you have a question yes although this is kind of an unfair question so tell me if it's like too hard um as you were reading your chapter on Mm -hmm. unfreeze your heart was there a piece of writing Mm -hmm. whatever type that you have come across that you think follows these parameters or like has helped you like mm-hmm. feel emotions that you have tamped down or something kind of like related to the chapter? Um, well, it's, this isn't an unfair question. I basically have the exact same question. My question is, oh, okay. is there a story that has helped <laughs> you process a complicated emotion or experience? So Ooh, yeah. um, okay. a little bit more general, I guess, but um, let me think. So a tragic comedy. I have a good example of that. It's a little unfair because it kind of steps on the toes of our pop culture pairings a little bit. Oh. But I'm glad that your question was the same because... Yeah. yeah I see what you're saying. Although, I, like I said, I didn't have like a super good pop culture Yeah. Pairing, okay. So. so it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. So um, maybe what I'll say is I mentioned this to you earlier, but I recently rewatched all of all of the Hobbit movies and all of the Lord of the Rings movies. Obviously extended mm-hmm. cut. Don't worry. I did it properly. And uh, <laughs> don't worry I, about me. I know how to watch <laughs> The Hobbit. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you think this is amateur hour? Uh, no. Absolutely not. Get I, a line. <laughs> There's no point in watching them unless it's the extended cut. Okay. Anyway, I'll stop being a fucking nerd about this. So. Um, no, please, please forever you. be on your soapbox about that. <laughs> so. I have, I've heard this from many people in the past, but I think it resonated with me a lot more this time. The, the story of Lord of the Rings in particular, especially the way it's presented in those films is something that combines elements of like deep friendship, humor, hope, 
like the, the human experience in s- extreme grief and trauma, all these mm-hmm. things that, you know, happen to us in our lives. And mm-hmm. I, most of the time when I watch those films, I resonate with three characters like Liz Gimli and Aragorn because they go on this like cross country quest to like save two of their other like party members and i they mm-hmm. i love them they're the funniest they're the coolest etc but this time as i was watching it i found that i was really resonating with two characters who usually i just really want to skip their scenes which like don't come for me everyone i Ooh. don't skip them i just usually want to because they're sadder <laughs> and it's with um sam and frodo mm-hmm. as they're trying to get to mount doom to get rid of the ring and it's just brutal watching them like suffer so that's part of why i like wish to get through it Um, Mm -hmm. but this time I felt like the grief was really soothing to me to like watch someone do something so painful and hard and know that it was Mm going to change them forever, but like keep going because that's, that was the choice that they had. So I just Mm -hmm. found that, you know, because it's combined with other things that are happy and exciting and interesting and like that, the story of their like trek to Mount Doom is also interesting but in a different way it makes it so that you can keep going um because you get the little relief of some of the other parts of it but you get to still watch this journey that is really significant and helps you process your own grief yeah absolutely i think i yeah i think it's that's a good word for it is like the package that it comes in mm-hmm. really matters right yeah, like, yeah. i think <laughs> it's like Sometimes things that seem insurmountable or um, maybe something that we feel like we can't work through or even come in contact with mm-hmm. becomes so much more accessible if it's in a package that comes with humor and hope and yeah, uh, friendship and loyalty and all of these other things that feel safe for mm-hmm. us. So mm-hmm. it's like safe to work through it when it comes with all these other things. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I do think that's like probably the best example I have. Yeah, no, that's a really good one. I was thinking specifically, trying to think about the, um, the follow your dreams mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. thing. Um, I feel like there are a lot of things that come to mind for for both of our chapters um, that felt like ways for me to process things, even though they didn't really reflect my specific re- experiences, mm-hmm. like. Um, Insecure, uh, which is a TV show um, on HBO that just Mm -hmm. finished its final season, uh, was created and uh, wrote and run by Issa Rae, who's fantastic and hilarious. Uh, And I think at the beginning of the show, she has a job at a nonprofit called We Got (laughs) (laughs) Y'all. And the the nonprofit is, like, super shitty. Yeah. And... um, just like doesn't pay her at all and it's really hard work and uh, she feels very lost in her career and I think watching that felt like a an avenue to feel how I felt about my career when I was like 23 24 which is like I, I'm doing this thing because I thought it's what I wanted but wait a minute is it actually what I wanted though <laughs> and like having to confront that and feeling like both a little bit devastated about how much energy you sunk into something that turned out to not be the right path, but also feeling excited about what that means for new possibilities. And 
uh, I think that was definitely a like good example of something where I could like mm-hmm. feel it through that story. Um, and in yeah, the- I mean, in terms of, oh, go ahead. I was going to ask in that I haven't seen that show. So in it, does she leave her job at the nonprofit and explore a different thing? Yeah. So she ends up throughout the course of the show, leaving the nonprofit and then going to follow her passion, which was working within her community mm. and uh, creating more or less like an events uh, organization where she throws events for Inglewood uh, which is her neighborhood in LA. And yeah, it is very like empowering to yeah. watch someone like actually do the thing, you know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. decide to change careers and make herself happier. And like yeah. the the process was very meandering. It wasn't mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. at the beginning of the season, she worked at a nonprofit she didn't like. And then by the end, she was a successful event planner. It yeah. was truly ups and downs throughout five seasons. And I think mm-hmm. I appreciated the uh, unexpected mm-hmm. longevity of how that process went. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was just really great to watch. Yeah. Yeah. That, I think that's a great example of how you can experience a story that helps you imagine a different future for yourself Mm -hmm. yeah uh i also did really like fun home which is allison Mm -hmm. bechdel's uh graphic novel so Mm -hmm. would definitely suggest people check that out uh chris bought it for me my gosh like seven years ago or something and Mm -hmm. i remember reading it and just being like so mesmerized by Mm -hmm how engrossing it is and how raw it is. And mm-hmm. it's kind of how I felt after I watched Nanette, the stand up mm-hmm. hour. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that. Which is like just so connected to it in ways yeah. that is a little bit difficult to articulate, but yeah, that, that is really great. And I hope people check it out. Yeah. That's a good, um, I, haven't read it but there were little image clips from it in the chapter and it looked really Mm -hmm. interesting and fun yeah yeah i i thought it was really one of the one of my favorite memoirs that i've read of the last Mm -hmm. you know several years nice for sure i i also think people should watch 30 rock obviously um Um, also, if you're looking for more absurdist comedy and you have already watched 30 Rock through 12 times like we have, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I would suggest uh, I Think You Should Leave, which is on Netflix. It's mm-hmm, short. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. It's hilarious. Or Broad City, which is now mm-hmm. on the air, but borrows a lot, I think, from 30 Rock. I haven't seen Broad City, and I I think I've only watched some of I Think You Should Leave, but agree. I Think You Should Leave is definitely the weirder of the two is it sketches yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah i started that yeah um no good good call i i know we talk about 30 rock a lot but it when i started watching it, it was back in like 2012 2011 and i it really helped me through like a period of depression it, it was just very I felt like it was a show that saw me and got my humor in a way that I hadn't experienced before and mm, yeah. feeling like I belonged somewhere even if it was just like in this made up world was really comforting so I support yeah it. 
Yeah, I agree. I also think the, I don't know, the absurdity makes it feel like anything that's happening in the show that's a conflict Mm -hmm. isn't something that you have to actually worry about. Right. Because it's an absurd world where these issues aren't real issues. And so in a way, it's also comforting through that angle because it doesn't feel like you walk away from the show feeling stressed out about anything that happened. It's uh, similar to a sitcom in that the episodes do seem to be wrapped up by the end of it, but not in a way that like, and everyone learned their lesson. And then, you know, the audience uh, laugh track started and, you know, (laughs) it's not Full House, but... (laughs) Yeah. And by the end of the series, I won't spoil it, but like a couple of the really long arcs that the main character, Liz Lemon, was trying to achieve in her life that she really wanted for fulfillment come to pass. And there's lots Mm -hmm. of like ups and downs on the way there. And she's at a point in her life where you would think like, well, she's not going to get those things. And then she does in in the unexpected ways. And I just love that because there's a lot of hope Mm -hmm. in a story like that. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, I like that you say unexpected ways, too, because you're the whole mm-hmm. series, you're kind of like waiting for her to like get married and have yeah. a biological baby. And in the end, uh, should I spoil it? It's been on sure. the air forever. It's been like, you know years. what? Yeah. If you Turn haven't watched it, it yet, it's you your don't want a spoiler. <laughs> you have five seconds. Five, four, three. Two. It sounds like this is going to self-destruct. Explode. Um, anyway. Uh, yeah. And then in the end, she ends up with a you know, life partner and mm-hmm. they end up adopting children who are, I think like nine or something. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, like it, it also goes to show that like you can get what you want out of life if you're open to it mm-hmm. happening in a way that you didn't expect, which is, and nice. the, the kids that she adopts are weird and complicated in the exact same way as the two like people that she worked with that were always causing her trouble all in this, set eight seasons or whatever (laughs) so it's like it it goes to show that the difficult things you experience prepare you for the good things and help you be ready Mm -hmm. to to take them on in the way that the universe wants you to be ready so i love that too it's very like yay uplifting (laughs) yeah for sure for sure uh the best yeah i promise we'll take a pause on talking about it for like one episode and then i don't promise I don't like, I refuse. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so that is, that's our first episode back. Season two. This is so exciting. Yeah. Season two. Uh, next time we will be back with more content yes, on yes. different things. On some stuff <laughs> and stuff. Things so evasive. <laughs> Well, we've we've really shot ourselves in the foot in the past by saying, like, committing to these things that we're doing. No more committing. From here on out, we do whatever we want whenever we feel like it. New year, new us. <laughs> same year, same bullshit. No commitments. <laughs> it's all about us. <laughs> well. You're welcome, listeners. <laughs> uh, I guess... Join us next time for more of this bullshit. Bye.